this week. Qasem Soleimani is a rock star among the Shia militia and many people in Iran. That man had the blood of British troops on his hands. Iran must abandon its nuclear ambitions and end its support for terrorism. The time has come for the United Kingdom, Germany, France, Russia and China to recognize this reality. Hello, I'm James Hurst. Iran responded to America's assassination of General Qasem Soleimani by firing 22 ballistic missiles at two coalition military bases in Iraq. Hours later, President Trump said this. As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Good morning. I'm pleased to inform you the American people should be extremely grateful and happy. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. Well, joining us are Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, and Christopher Lee, our own defence analyst here at BFBS. Uh, Karen, a bizarre start to that address yesterday. <laughs> yes. Uh, we all know he doesn't like reading from the teleprompter, and it's even possible he got the first few lines confused. I think he may even be a teeny bit dyslexic. I'm not entirely sure, but he's not good when he reads stuff. He much prefers doing these impromptu uh, speeches at rallies, and so he rarely does these speeches. But this uh, was arguably the, the most significant world event of his premiership so far. Yeah, I don't, you know, he doesn't necessarily see things that way. I think, you know, he thinks he's fully in control of everything he does. And, you know, he was probably forced to explain to the American people what had happened. I think his preference is just to do what he wants to do and wander off to the next thing. But he was under a lot of pressure from Congress in particular. And uh, don't forget, Congress also had a an intelligence briefing by Pompeo and a few others about what had happened and what was the intelligence behind the decision. And they emerged very unhappy, including Republicans, about what they had heard. They said, this is very thin and we're not convinced. So I think he sort of needed to build up some public support. So the the most basic question here, is killing General Soleimani a terrible decision by the Trump administration? Or is it Iran out of its depth here? You know, I, I don't think it was the right thing to do. It's not to say that this is a, a good man. We all know he's not a good person and no one's going to mourn his passing besides a few of his, his mates in the region. Um, but it was a very risky move and it wasn't clear that it was such an imminent threat. And so therefore it may not even be legal under U.S. law. So there's a big debate right now in Congress. They're trying to pass on the House side a law to prevent uh, Trump from doing anything more with Iran right now because things like this could easily escalate into war. It's not like killing bin Laden or Baghdadi who are non-state actors and terrorists. This is a senior representative of a government that the U.S. is not at war with. Uh, Christopher Lee, uh, we've had the U.S. vice president saying intelligence reports suggest Iranian militias have effectively been told to stand down, but equally we hear a senior Iranian commander saying Tehran will take harsher revenge is this over or not too many involved isn't there to be for it to be over uh, it's all right lots of lots of people are saying let's cool it and there are indications indications that's all that uh, one speaker in in iran says okay well 
we 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 can think of other things. We can think of the future. We have the president of the United States saying that Iran has stood down, whatever that means. But you don't call something like this. You've still got, for example, the uh, important important element of the of the agreement, which was abandoned by the the Americans with Iran, to to limit the the scientific progress of the development of of, of, of nuclear nuclear systems, not just missiles, but also. But 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 also uh, peaceful uses of uh, that. So it's not over. And the other thing to remember is that Iran Iran have uh, very long memories. Mm. Let's bring in uh, Michael Stathis, professor of political science at Southern Utah University. Michael, do you think this was a, a bad decision by the United States, or actually has has President Trump strengthened his hand on on that core message we heard? Iran will not get a nuclear weapon while I'm president. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to achieve that goal. Uh, th- this last week uh, has been very reminiscent of when I was in junior high school, uh, when we were sent home um, uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, this, this is a serious crisis, uh, and it could uh, further uh, or completely destabilize uh, uh, the Middle East. Um, we're on the verge of, uh, of something very, very terrible. And uh, here in America, we are looking at this from another point of view. Uh, this was clearly a violation of American law. In 1976, President Gerald Ford uh, issued Executive Order 11905, uh, and the essence of that executive order is that uh, No executive or no member of the executive branch shall be allowed to be involved in uh, the assassination of a foreign leader. Uh, This uh, executive order hasn't even been talked about. Um, What Trump did was a clear violation of uh, uh, checks and balances, separation of powers, however you want to look at it. Can I just bring in Karen von Hippel there? Because, Karen, from your your work with the U.S. State Department, does does that cross over or is that perhaps negated by this self-defense line that that the the U.S. is pushing? The... uh, Sorry. I was just going to say, I agree with Michael. I mean, you know, the U.S. government's it's not supposed to be assassinating foreign leaders, um, but of course, since uh, the eight, the authorization to use military force was authorized in the early, I think it was 2002 or three, uh, to go after Al- or after 9/11, sorry, 2001, to go after Al Qaeda, that particular authorization has been stretched and contorted in all sorts of directions, and that's actually what they tried to use to justify what they did in Iran. But of course, Iran is not Al Qaeda, so no, Michael is. I mean, I, you know, I. Fully agree with Michael's analysis on this. Uh, uh, as, sorry, go ahead, Michael. Agree. Uh, what we need here in the United States is a Stephen Langton. Uh, 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 we may need something akin to a Magna Carta uh, to uh, make the point that the president uh, is uh, subservient to the law. Uh, uh, what he did uh, technically needed a congressional authorization. The president does not have uh, the singular authority uh, to go out and bump off, to use an American phrase, uh, foreign leaders. But briefly, Michael Stathis, is the fact that Donald Trump is seen as such a 
a caricature figure actually changing the way people are are analyzing a, a military decision well uh we are already uh in the throes of uh uh a battle over whether to um uh, issue articles of impeachment for other uh, uh, other activities uh, and indeed the uh the house has thought about adding uh, uh another article of impeachment based on uh, the um, assassination of Suleimani. Michael Stathis, thank you for your thoughts on that today. Let's talk about the Middle East in military terms, Christopher Lee. Uh, remind us who is where, starting with the US. Well, if you look at Iraq, which is the main the the the, the, the main base, apart from the naval bases in the in the in the, in the Gulf, and also specialist forces in maybe Syria, etc. There are five main bases in in Iraq for the Americans in the huge Al Assad base, which is not far from uh, uh, Baghdad, uh, Taji, Bismaya, Korea West, and Erbil. Erbil uh, often talked about because uh, a lot of lot of IS activity there. It's all true. We're talking about maybe five, six thousand people with another three thousand to be deployed. But remember, uh, the way this is going, you could almost you can almost get a, an idea that the American forces are almost hostages because they're reliant on. Uh, sharing bases, they're reliant on the Iraqis uh, for being there, it, it, and this is something which will, which will be argued and debated, but uh, and become contentious in, in in the very near future. The British, uh, you can put them in sort of three or four bases in 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 uh, in, in a, on a small scale, four hundred. 500 people, that's all. And they're but reliant then, on the US, aren't they? Well, that's true. But then you get to the, which I which I always, re, and that's part of in a, tra, a, a tra, training rule, but then you get to the main, the important part, I think, of the British uh, contingent there, and that is the naval base, uh, in you know, which is which is based on, on Bahrain. Um, but you get uh, a destroyer, a frigate, uh, uh, RFA support ships, and four smaller vessels, the MCMVs, mine countermeasure vessels, but extraordinarily important because they can set up an international, or they can avoid an international uh, problem straight away by defending merchant shipping, especially tanker shipping in, in that Gulf. So we see there a military alliance in action, but what about policy alliance? President Trump thinks the UK should be demonstrating its loyalty to American Policy as well as military, doesn't it, Christopher? Yeah, and the, the, and this is this is the difference, and I think it's one of the major questions that the, can can the, or should the United Kingdom uh, proceed with its present sort of transatlantic relationship? Um, and if you if you if you look at the origins of this, uh, I mean, go back a hundred years, you can go back to the First World War, where America did not want to be known as an ally. I mean, Wilson and, and the Congress said we are associates. And this is important even now that if you're associates, you a you don't have the responsibility, but also you can you can adjust your alliance. But this is a very difficult one when when um, the president gets up and he gets on television, and he says to the people, and when you look at the list, he said it was the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Russia, China, should all toe the American line on the major policy, and that's the relationship with 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 Iran. That is something which the uh, Europeans and America may differ, and the consequences of that we know not. Karen von Hippel, are America and Britain policy allies in 2020, or are, are, are we now associates? 
Look, I mean, it's, you know, the U.S. and the U.K. have long had a very close relationship. The case this time is different because the Trump administration didn't give any advance notice of what it was about to do. It's very rare that that happens. Even under the Bush administration, when they're about to go to war with Iraq and many French and others didn't want uh, it to happen, the U.S. consulted widely in advance of these decisions. And of course, uh, with pretty much, you know, throughout the Obama administration, there were no decisions taken without extensive consultations with the Brits. This time, people were informed afterwards. So, of course, you you know, I, I, why would Britain be expected to jump in and clean up a mess that it did not create, especially given the lack of consultation, uh, you know, before the decision was made? They, you know, it's very unlikely they would consult about the next step. So I don't know why Britain would jump in willy-nilly. But does that just apply in this situation or does it signal actually how things have shifted over time and, and, and how our futures are diverging? I possibly? think it's a Trump administration thing. I think if Trump were no longer there, it would swing back to normal. It doesn't mean everyone would you know, be as supportive of US policy decisions as in the past, but certainly the relationships would be restored if someone like uh, Vice President Biden were to win the presidency. I don't think that the U.S. this would not be the new way of doing things because I think the U.S. knows more should know anyway more than in the past that the world is more complicated. It is not the only superpower anymore, and it needs all the help it can get. And so it's in the U.S.'s interest to work very closely with allies. I tell you what, if I were planning an operation like this assassination. There is no way in which I would have told the United Kingdom, France or Germany. That would have leaked out within the second after it had been told and could have fouled up the operation. Uh, there are certain things you just don't have to do that step too far. I mean, oh, no, no. K- K- Karen, well, I mean, you've, been, you've been involved in these kind of yeah. d- discussions in the past. Uh, is there a precedent for not informing uh, allies I mean, like the doing- UK? The Trump administration is using the same excuse for not informing Congress. So they, as I mentioned, they had that briefing on the Hill uh, about the intelligence. The intelligence was sketchy. And then Vice President Pence today said, we can't give all the details to Congress because it would compromise our sources and methods. So they're not even trusting their own Congress, which is, you know, as the professor was saying earlier, is supposed to be part of the decision to go to war and they all have security clearance. I mean, it's, you know, it seems like a joke, especially after what happened with the Iraq war, when the intelligence was cooked, etc. People are very skeptical of what this administration is saying, uh, besides, of course, Trump's hardcore base, which believe pretty much anything that comes out of his mouth. But let's take it up one level from from Congress and the U.S. government. The U.N. Security Council, I mean, that was set up surely to to play an active role in situations Mm. like this. There's been silence. Why is that? Well, yeah, there's been silence, although the secretary general is working behind the scenes to try to de-escalate and calm things down. A country needs to to raise something at the Security Council, propose some sort of support or, or or censure of what happened. And as far as I know, that hasn't happened, but the Secretary General himself is involved behind the scenes. I mean, the UN has just been marginalized for at least a decade. The Syrian civil war just showed 
how impossible it was to get anything done at the Security Council because Russia and China would veto or abstain on any vote that tried to uh, censure the Syrian regime for killing civilians. And so the Security Council has just not been the tool that it should be. And, you know, I'm worried about the future of the UN really right now because it's just, it, you know, even though there's a stronger leader than the UN has had before, it's just not capable of asserting itself in these kinds of situations in the way that it should. Well, let's bring it all back to London. Where should Britain stand on this? President Trump has made it clear what he thinks the UK should be doing. Iran must abandon its nuclear ambitions and end its support for terrorism. The time has come for the United Kingdom, Germany, France, Russia, and China to recognize this reality. They must now break away from the remnants of the Iran deal, or JCPOA. And we must all work together toward making a deal with Iran that makes the world a safer and more peaceful place. Julian Lewis is former chair of the Commons Defence Committee. Laura Makinisha had asked him if the UK's foreign policy should be aligned so closely with America's. I think on the whole, UK foreign policy has benefited from being linked with US foreign policy, but there's an underlying assumption, and that is that those who frame UK foreign policy must be told what American foreign policy is. Now, during the statement yesterday, I expressed my uncertainty as to whether this latest event was a sign that President Trump was reversing his original policy of withdrawal from American involvement in the area, or whether it meant that he was still intent on withdrawing, or whether it meant that really he was playing it by ear, as it were, and had no systematic approach. We cannot decide properly whether or not to support American foreign policy unless and until the Americans share with us not so much the question of this particular initiative or that particular strike, but what their foreign policy is. And the worst example of this was the way in which our Kurdish allies in Syria were thrown under the, met uh, the metaphorical bus by President Trump uh, and I don't know whether we had any warning of that. And if we did have any warning of that, I would have thought we'd have been dismayed. It seems as though the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab at least, is sort of aligning himself more with Europe, isn't he? With Germany, with France in terms of calling for that de-escalation, still trying to push for the uh, Iran nuclear deal to be salvaged. Is this the start of a kind of split then, do you think, away from the US? I would hope it isn't. I would really hope it isn't. It would be sheer madness at a time when Britain is reasserting its independence uh, from the, what should we say, the multilateral unified foreign and defence policy that the European Union is trying to construct, uh, that we were to um, allow ourselves to be divided from the United States. But let's just remember one other thing. Uh, I do not know what will happen at the next election in the United States, but at the moment it looks as if President Trump is likely to be re-elected. So he will be there for another four years. He's a very unusual and a very unpredictable president, as we've been discussing. 
but four years in foreign policy terms is not very long. It will fly by, and although a lot of bad things can happen in four years, there is no earthly reason, even if we decided that it was too difficult to know what President Trump was going to do on any given occasion, uh, those four years will go by. Uh, they may well work out a lot better than we expect, but even if they don't, it would be sheer madness to break the Anglo-American link, which has helped keep the peace in Europe for more than half a century and guarantee our own freedom and security. It would be sheer madness to do that just because we had a difficult relationship with one individual occupant of the White House. Karen von Heppel, is Dr Gillian Lewis right there that it would be sheer madness uh, not to just ride this out with uh, over one president and, and to stick with an ally? I mean, look, there's alliances are about respect and uh, occasional disagreements. And, you know, the Brit British government obviously is very close to the US and Boris has a great relationship with President Trump, right? Prime Minister Prime Minister um, Johnson has a great relationship with Trump. So it's not as if he has to say, you know, I'm with you or fully against you. He's, you know, they can easily say we're happy to support in this way or that way, but they do need to be involved in some of the decision making and they need to make sure it meets the security interests of this country. So I don't think that Trump or uh, the US administration in general is going to fully cut off Britain if Britain doesn't support everything the U.S. is doing in Iran. I don't think it works that way. Trump may think that way, but, you know, he needs his friends and he doesn't have many right now. Uh, Christopher Lee, is this just a, a temporary thing? Is this just a, a Trump phenomenon? Is it this another side of this? Um, if you remember, last summer, the British ambassador, uh, or last spring, rather, the, the British ambassador in to Washington... Uh, said something in a, in a in an email back to London that he didn't think that the American president was very smart. Mm -hmm. They're a bunch of thickos. Um, this um, got widespread sort of reaction in the White House and said, "We're not going to deal with this guy again." Now that guy was there for the rest of the summer and still there waiting for the replacement. Yeah. These are not surprising then when Julian Lewis says, well, we've got to get the analysis right. Uh, and the White House and the State Department and not talking to the um, British ambassador. It's, it's hardly surprising that in circumstances, the America has not been keeping us in the loop, has it? Yeah, the communication channels are, are always important. There's always somebody else who does the analysis, I know. But, you know, if the canopy is not going around at the right time, then the times get hard. Well, talking of communication channels, uh, and perhaps a, a, an important symbolic piece of communication, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson spoke to Iran's President Rouhani by, by phone for 20 minutes. Now, according to number 10, the theme was to de-escalate. But more importantly, Boris Johnson told him that the UK stands by Iran in maintaining the 2015 nuclear agreement that limits Iran's development of nuclear science. America, as we heard earlier, demanding that the UK, France and Germany pull out of that deal. So we do appear to be defying America. Let's bring in Mary Dijewski, who writes for the 
independent. Uh, Mary, this isn't just about the US and Iran. Other countries have their own views on, on how this should be, should be played out, and uh, America's not accepting that lightly, is it? No, well, I think it's very interesting. But of course, we've got a president in the White House who doesn't um, mince his words, does he? And who's really pioneered a new form of communication. But I think it's also very interesting that um, Boris Johnson's administration in the UK seems to be taking at least some of a leaf out of that book. And I think partly it's because, you know, Boris Johnson is good at communicating. Um, And so the fact that we had a readout, the readout that Downing Street wanted us to have um, after that conversation with Rouhani, I think is um, it's not only interesting, but it's quite smart diplomacy from Downing Street. In terms of world diplomacy, can there be any effective agreement on Iran and its, its nuclear future without the US being involved? Well, I think, you know, on the one hand, it's very difficult. On the other hand, um, with what President Trump was saying yesterday, you heard rather a different tone. Um, Much less of the bombast, much more of the, at least in tone, the de-escalation. And this is what you're getting from Europe. Now, you know, what seems like a really long time ago now, um, President Macron talked about maybe this could be some room for compromise between the Americans and the Europeans on maybe forging some sort of amended deal um, on the nuclear issue with Iran. Now, you know, obviously for all the reasons that we've been looking at just in the last few days, um, that hasn't come to anything. But there's no reason why, given what appears to be the solidarity of Europe, which includes the UK on the brink of Brexit, and maybe this new tone from, from Washington, you know, maybe we could be looking at something, going back to something along the Macron line. Interesting, of course, the North Koreans have been watching all this and they have observed one simple fact. If you're developing nuclear weapons, people talk to you. Yes, and they're absolutely right, aren't they? Um, but I think in a way that you know, it's all very well for North Korea to come out and say that, but it's so very much on the sidelines. And I also think in a way that um, the extent to which Donald Trump has the measure of North Korea um, has really been quite underestimated. Ever since um, he, in the jargon, reached out to North Korea and Kim Jong-un, actually North Korea has ceased to be the problem that it's been for at least the last five, maybe ten years. Um, we're looking at something quite different. And so that, you know, Donald Trump will trump it as successful. He will point to his critics who who, who said he shouldn't be doing it. Um, could actually this Iran situation end up being something that he can also point to as having achieved despite what his critics said? Well, it's probably a bit early to say, isn't it? Um, but at the moment, it certainly looks a lot less bad than it looked, say, three, four days ago. Um, but there's a long way to go yet, isn't there? In all this, uh, Russia has been fairly quiet. Uh, I just wonder what they're sitting thinking in Moscow. Are they rubbing their hands together with glee at, at the Americans being in a sticky situation? 
Well, there's something very, very interesting about um, Moscow's reaction, and it reminded me very much um, right towards the beginning of the war in Syria. Um, I happened to be on a visit to Israel, and we were looking out over the Golan Heights, and one Israeli official said, you know, this is an almost unique situation, he said. Nobody is blaming Israel for what's happening. And you can see something similar with Moscow at the moment, Um, a degree of satisfaction that nobody is blaming Moscow. On the other hand, um, immediately after the assassination, I mean, that completely floored Moscow, just as it had floored so many of um, America's allies, because they really didn't know what to do. Um, It was very easy to condemn it as an illegal act, which, of course, they did. Having done that, the question is, what was going to be the fallout? Was there going to be fallout for Russia? Mary Dijewski, thank you. Russia's analysts were very divided over that. Mary Dijewski, thank you very much. Uh, Karen von Hippel, final thought. Should, can the UK proceed with its current transatlantic policy? Is this a waypoint? Well, can I just add a point that, don't forget, the Iran deal was actually pushed by the Americans. 